millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Georgina Moore about her contemporary novel, The Garnet Girls. Georgina is an award-winning book publicist who has worked in the publishing industry for 20 years. She's worked with a huge variety of authors across all genres and at all stages of their careers. In this episode, Georgina speaks about what it's like to be on the other side of book publicity and how authors can best support their publishing team. And also why writing dialogue was the aspect she found hardest. But before we get into that, here's Georgina with an excerpt from The Garnet Girls. Margot let the heavy door slam behind her, her hand lingering on the cold brass of the doorknob. She felt the heat envelop her, the air thick and still with it, no sea breeze to bring relief. There was even a heat haze over the sea blurring the horizon. Sasha's small sticky hand slipped out of hers and she was off, taking Sandco's steep steps with hops and jumps. Da, she kept calling. She was chasing her father. She was always chasing her father. Margot watched as the white blonde curls shot along the sea wall above the beach, the curve of her cheek slathered in sun cream. Margot shouted, not near the edge, hearing the echoes of all the times growing up this had been shouted at her. Immy, go with her, make sure she's okay. Your father's too far away. Imogen obediently trailed down the steps, book in hand. She moved slowly, dreamily. Margot noticed how knotted her long hair was. There was a huge bird's nest at the back. People would think she wasn't coping if they saw it. Quicker than that! She's already at the walkway! Margot felt Rachel lurking beside her, two enormous picnic bags at her feet. Margot looked at her eldest daughter's face, which always seemed to be set in a scowl these days. She was wiser than she should be at nine, clever and sarcastic. She did not help the atmosphere in the house with her sharp observations. What's wrong now? Didn't you see? Dad just left. He didn't take anything for the picnic. Margot had seen Richard's pale legs disappearing over Horriston Point. He'd been holding something, most likely the cooler box. He would already be on the white sand of Priory, a glass in his hand, chatting to whoever was there. On a day like this, people would be coming into the bay by boat for barbecues and picnics. He couldn't wait to get away from us. Margot wanted to go back alone into the cool and quiet of the house. But she couldn't leave Richard in charge. She would never be able to leave Richard in charge. She needed to say something reassuring to Rachel. Don't be silly. He went ahead to get a good spot. Margot ignored the world-weary sigh beside her. 
She picked up the two bags. You okay to take the rug, darling? She looked out at the horseshoe of the bay. The light was dazzling. The tide had come right in, leaving only a crescent of beach. Look, Rach, it's perfect for swimming. Hi, Georgina. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to talk about your debut novel, The Garnet Girls. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. So can you start by telling us what The Garnet Girls is about? Yes, so The Garnet Girls is about three sisters, Rachel, Imogen and Sasha. And when they were young, their father, Richard, um, abandoned them. He left. And he was this great love of their mother's life, Margot. It was kind of one of those classic epic loves. But Richard had a problem with alcohol. He was an alcoholic. And um, when he leaves, and they're all quite little, Margot really is not good. I she, she basically takes to her bed with a depression for about a year. And the children are left to fend for themselves in a way and look after themselves. And when we pick up the story of the Garnet Girls, we sort of see them later in life. They're all in their 30s at different stages. And we see how this sort of silence, Margot's just refused to talk about what happened with Richard. And, and it's sort of this big silent secret. And you see how it's affected the girls' lives and how they're dealing with it. And this, I, Margot is hugely charismatic, but she's also quite a piece of work. And she's trying to control the girls' lives, like some mothers do, and mainly out of love and actually protectiveness, because she wants them to um, have, you know, nice, safe, ordinary husbands who allow them to be very brilliant, but who won't let them down like the drunk, sexy poet that was their father. Uh, and so that's where they're all at. And it's about the tensions and the push-pull of that relationship with their mother. Mm, and it's all about their relationships and their kind of... Or I would say a lot of them are we meet them at a quite an unhappy phase in their life. So we're we're mm. joining them all at kind of points of conflict, which makes the kind of tensions between them even more delicious to read. And <laughs> I will we'll kind of delve into the girls a bit more later. But yeah. I wanted to speak to you about how this book began, because mm. you did what many people dreamed of doing, which was to write a book in lockdown. And yeah. this is where you began the novel, because I read an interview where you said that you use this basically as an escape because the novel set on the Isle of Wight and that's where you kind of enjoyed being in your imagination. Mm -hmm. So did the idea for the novel begin as your kind of version of escape? Yes, I, I think it did. I think like a lot of nerdy book lovers as a child, I was, you know, lots of people have come forward going, oh, do you remember that character you created? And I've got notebooks full of stories. I, I once wrote when I was about nine, a story called Aurora of Willowdale, which is a direct ripoff of Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, and then I got this fantastic career in um, publicity and publishing. And it it really was when I, when I started off in it, um, it was really a light bulb moment, you know, look Looking after authors, spreading the word about books, what could be better? Um, and it's not the kind of job, Chloe, where you have a lot of spare time. You're traveling around, you're going to festivals. You know, I was working with a lot of looking after people like Hillary Clinton when she came over for her memoir. You know, it's bit, it's it, it's big stuff that really is there's not a lot of spare time. And so I was completely wrapped up in that career. And also, I would say probably a little bit put off um, <laughs> wanting to write because I know I saw the other side. I saw what the expectations are. I saw the competition and also how hard authors have to work and how what a tough skin you have to have to take bad reviews or bad sales. And 
because often as a publicist you're the one breaking that news to authors so I kind of put it off and then I, I a story was brewing and I always wanted to write the kind of book I love to read which is a family saga about that's more character driven than plot driven um that's about and I really wanted to explore mothers and daughters because I think that's the most fascinating relationship at the heart of everything and um I there was something brewing about a family and then I was on we were on the island we have a houseboat there that we use that we rent out for holidays and there's some beautiful beaches and we were walking along um, Seagrove Bay and this family came out of a big crumbling house and they were all going sailing together and like a lot of people, Chloe, I'm sure have this dream too of a big house on the beach. You really see them in the Isle of Wight. I mean, they're quite a, that you'll get a line of them all right on the sand and the families come out. And something just a penny dropped. And then I think, you know, I started writing it, um, but I wasn't making much headway because of busy life. I've got, you know, two kids, whatever. And then lockdown came and I was a bit like, well, if I don't do it now, when will I do it? Mm. And I started the first time ever in my life. Um, and I started getting up early because I'm definitely an end of the night kind of person rather than. So I think because there were so, my, so many elements of the job disappeared. You know, I wasn't traveling. I wasn't going to festivals or events. You know, I wasn't going in and out of the BBC with authors. So I had more time and I wasn't having late nights. So I could get up. And I think probably like a lot of mums and dads all over the country, I was having to do online schooling, which is a nightmare. Um, and this was my bit of the day, really, that was just for me. Um, mm. And I really loved it. And I sort of get up at five and have that bit of time. And as you say, quite rightly, I was escaping to the island and we couldn't go. It was that part where we really couldn't go anywhere. Um, it's hard to look back on it and remember, but we couldn't travel or do anything. And so, yes, I think, and I think a little bit of that longing is in the book. Oh, absolutely. I I got a, a real sense of longing, both in when you described the Isle of Wight, but also the uh, initial chapter where one of your characters is in Italy. And it's a real, I I just got this kind of shimmering heat and longing about the, the sense of place. And that's something you're brilliant at as a writer, is this, oh, this sense of place and the setting um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Isle of Wight um, and mm. and how you kind of felt about it and how you wrote about it because in a way there's a real glamour about it and a sort of a nostalgia about the way you write about it. So can you tell us about that and also what significance does this place have for your characters? So um, quite a few people. I've had quite a lot of rows with people. One of them is Philip Jones, who's the editor of the bookseller, who's convinced that my Isle of Wight does not exist. <laughs> and I'm convinced that he hasn't been to the right place. <laughs> and I think there is this dichotomy in the island, you know, that there are, I, I mean, I love the slightly rundown, peeling hotels, you know, slightly abandoned Edwardian seaside feel in places. But there is a very glamorous side. I mean, you only have to go to Priory Bay with all the ribs and yachts coming in and people, you know, and there's, and, and so there is, and with the heat, and it does have a bit of a microclimate, Chloe. So you, you're often blessed with amazing weather in the summer. So I think it's that it has as a place that uh, something that I think writers are really interested in, which is that is that small that small town, small community, mm. and it, there, there tends to be quite a, a little bit of a snobbishness on the island about you know families that go back and back and back. Oh yes, they're an old Isle of Wight family, or they're an old Seaview family, and there is that feeling, and I, I, I was just fascinated by it. 
I was fascinated mm-hmm. by the way everyone knew each other in the pub and and we started to make friends with neighbours and stuff in in the harbour and Bembridge and stuff. And you get this sense of a very strong community, but with very, very deep roots uh, that still exist, despite the what do they call them? The people that come in from London, uh, the weekenders from London. So I was fascinated by that and what it might be like to grow up in that, because everyone would know your business. Um <laughs> And so that is very much what the girls have had to deal with. Um, I think the island means different things to different people in the book. Margot can't, you know, she's had, she's left Sanko, the big house, and moved <laughs> to the oh, place. Say she's left. She's yeah. kind of, she creeps back there quite a bit. <laughs> and she's called. Cool. It's called the other place, her cottage, which I, 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 yeah, I'm finding my own jokes entertaining. That's bad. Um, (laughs) But so she does hasn't really left, but she's given it to given the house to Rachel because she was rattling around in it on her own. But she misses that the house has that bay view and big windows, uh, and she misses the space. um, And you always have a feel with Margot that she's sort of happiest out in her boat on the water. but for Rachel, who's taken on the house and is the eldest, she she feels trapped by the island. She 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 really wants to get out of there. She's just doing it to keep everyone happy, really. And she feels she should. And she's sort of tied to all the traditions that the house brings of, of Christmas a certain way and mm. everything done, even the tiles in the hallway that, you know, she's not been cleaning properly. She sort of and Margot keeps turning up through the back door. I mean <laughs> just horrendous really it would be a bit of a nightmare wouldn't it if you had a it, i know <laughs> i know and yet and yet yeah and yet who doesn't want to be at one of margot's parties with the it's yeah true um so but then um so then the image imogen who's in the middle she really is the one that probably has that soul um feeling with with margot as a daughter um and desperately wants to please Margot and so um she loves going home um but she also is having her own issues with the kind of man that she's going to be with because she's trying to do what Margot wants from her but it's not really going to make her happy as we find out I won't give too much away and then the last child Sasha the wild child she's running 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 away from the island Sand Cove um, she feels that the island is parochial, um, that there's no diversity, that, you know, it's all sailing and yachts and posh people. So she's trying to run away from it. Um, but of course, I think we find out th- as the novel progresses that they all have a sense of their home. Mm. And it, and it's really about trying to get away from home, but how it always pulls you back. I'd love to hear a bit more then about the characters and how they kind of came together in your mind, because you say you saw this family and then had this idea that was brewing. How did that become reality in a kind of practical way? Were you kind of making notes about these girls? Were you kind of making uh, little kind of character charts? How were you kind of forming them? Because I imagine that you've got a very strong, mainly female cast. Mm. How do you make them all distinct, but still feel like a family? Mm. yeah with a lot of hard work actually it really was <laughs> the, the 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 original title was going to be the ordinary husbands and that was a big part of my idea which that it would the husbands would be add-ons you know this mm. was the woman's story uh we have enough stories told from male point of view I you know I just 
they they're they're there as the 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 side characters it's the women's story so that was always very clear to me um I had an idea of their personalities but I used to I don't know I used to go and listen as a publicist to authors do events and they always said stuff that I just thought was probably not that true or I didn't (laughs) And one of the things people always say is, oh, yeah, and then I created the character and then they ran away with themselves and <laughs> went off and did stuff. And I was like, really? But, I always used to think that was complete. Yeah, like, I, I always like, used to think, it, yeah, <laughs> I used to think it was rubbish. And then and then I wrote The Garnet Girls. And I, you know, I think it's fair to say that they're probably, a lot of my friends have said they see elements of me in each one or at different stages. Um, but they really did. I mean, they feel, just talking about them, now to you Chloe they you know they do feel very real to me so they did go off and make their own way the other thing that happened was I did a first draft and I my partner is a psychotherapist and um he's the kind of man Chloe that reads the heart of darkness over and over again on holiday so I wasn't that hopeful of my commercial novel about women and women's feelings was going to go down that well because I'm not sure he'd read anything like it and um, he anyway, he read it and he said at the end, oh, I think you've got something here with this family. And so that was when I thought, oh, and he's my harshest critic. So I thought, OK, maybe there is. But he really sat down with me and because obviously he sees people in a certain way and we and, and he's very good on story. And he we talked about the girls and what it would really feel like to not have had a father mm. um, and how it would affect them differently so that they had a unique narrative about because one of the things I'm always fascinated in um, is that people can go through the same trauma. Uh, but come out in such different ways. Mm either surviving or in different survival mechanisms I find that really really interesting and I think the girls show that yeah I mean Rachel becomes almost a parental figure herself isn't she and I guess that she the others don't have that experience so she has a very different outlook on Richard and Richard's absence but she remembers Mm. him because she was the oldest yeah so that obviously affects their dynamic and also how they feel at the thought of ever Richard possibly coming back into their lives as well. I know. I think probably Rachel is the one that people... So um, we're about to launch this quiz um, on BuzzFeed about work out which Garnet girl you are. And so we were all, all, me and my agent and editor and stuff were all like, and I got Margot, which is hilarious. And everyone, and then everyone went, yeah, we knew you would. And I was like, okay, thanks. And then um, my my editor got, um, no, my agent got Rachel. And she said, oh God, I don't want to be Rachel. She's the boring, responsible one. And um, I was like, thanks. I, I don't think of Rachel like that because I think what happens is the reader I I hope a few people have said this that when you find out what Rachel went through as a child mm. you suddenly feel more sympathetically towards her uh-huh. uh, and I wanted that to be a bit later on because as you say she she really has to step up at 11 mm. I think mm. it's called Latchkey Kid, isn't it? That chapter where she's she's letting herself in and out. She's looking after the children and she keeps everyone together. Mm. And she's um, so young. I mean, Eleven is such a young mm. age doing that to have that mm. responsibility. And and Margot is is not the parent that she needs to be at that point either. No, no. and it in a way it's understandable that she then, when Margot does come back to life, and that she can't really trust. That she's going that she pushes her away and she feels bad about that later. But I I mean, I think 
almost the most realistic of you know well I hopefully they're all realistic but you know the what the the relationship that probably most people have with their mother is the one like that Rachel has with Margot which is a relationship that's being worked at day after day (laughs) after day that is you know I always had this feeling that one day I you know particularly as a mother that I would just wake up and feel grown up Mm. but I never have had that feeling and I and Margot talks about it and I think you know, you do go on changing and evolving your relationship with your parents. I think people who think you don't, that's not right. I think you can keep it. And that's what Rachel's doing. She's trying to live close with her mother and work it out and take her own ground. And in the end, well, anyway, I won't give it away, but, you know, that's what she needs to do. She needs to take her ground back. Mm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Let's talk about Margot then, because I saw an interview with you where you said that Margot <laughs> was a very deliberate, almost pushback against this idea of an older woman mm. sitting in the corner, wearing a cardigan, doing nothing, basically. And, and Margot is... It's definitely not like that. Was she inspired by, I mean, you said a little bit of you maybe, but was she inspired by anyone else um, in real life? How did you kind of create her? Because she's very, very vibrant, but very a very flawed character as well. Mm. I had a really charismatic grandmother um, who I was very close to, um, but she doesn't have the, the, the darker side. She didn't have the darker side. I think that... Um, Margot, I do feel really strongly about having older characters that are still living. You know, when I was writing the book, I got a bit of a shock because I probably still feel like I'm 30 something. And I think 30 something is such a crunch age for women, which is why all the girls are 30 something rather than 20 something, because it tends to be when society is putting its most pressure on women, you know, are you going to settle in that career? Are you going to have a baby? Is that man you've been with for ages the right person? Is it? You know, and and it's a really, really hard time, isn't it? It feels like the clock's ticking and whether you want a child or you don't want a child, people are telling you things. And But so when I was writing it, even though sort of spiritually and, and in my soul and spirit, I feel like one of the girls, 
I suddenly realised that, you know, I've just turned 50. Margot's about to turn 60 in the book. I'm closer in age to Margot. And I and it was good because it was a bit of a shock, but it also made me think, well, will I be that different in 10 years? Will I suddenly mm. stop loving parties and stop? Will I stop, you know, making self, you know, sometimes being a bit selfish and sometimes. So I, I think that that's where it comes from. Um, and a lot of charismatic people in my family that I've known. But I also really love her. And I don't think every I, I'm I, Chloe, I'm kind of aware that I think she, she won't be everyone's kind of person. I get that. And I think you either like books with flawed characters or you don't. And mm-hmm. some people don't love it, do they? They, they yeah. like, you know. And so I think some people will find her narcissistic. And but for me, I love her because I feel like she really loves those girls. And that she's been through a lot um you know in her life and she hasn't really let anyone come close to her she's had plenty of men come calling but um she hasn't and and and, and also her really at heart she's a huge romantic mm. um and i won't say anything about the ending but you know it's just whether she comes to question whether she's you know what what romantic love really is and what mm. is epic love so uh yeah i really love margot but i also understand that not everyone will yeah, I mean, that's fair. I think yeah. some people have very fixed ideas about mm. what they like in characters or what is a, li- a line crossed for them. Uh, yeah, and morality as well. Yeah, it's yeah. always difficult to... Yeah. And you cannot please everyone. There no. are always people that say, you know, two stars, this main character was awful. And you just yeah. think, to me, I think the beauty in fiction is flawed characters because mm. yes they might not be people we want to know in real life but who doesn't want to read yeah. about what their, their messy lives I mean to me that's the yeah, attraction yeah. of fiction um, one thing Margot does do as we've already said is throw these fantastic gatherings and parties mm. Mm. and that is where a lot of the family are together and where the tension is bristling under the surface and a lot of the time it's in what they don't say. So you obviously get to do a lot of work on the dialogue. Can you talk about how you kind of approached their conversations and their dialogue when there was a big group of them not really yeah. saying exactly how they feel or mean? Uh, um, yeah, da- it was interesting because when I um, got my first editing notes back, um, you know, they, they sh- the editor loved the sense of place, loved um, the characters, but wasn't keen on my dialogue, to be honest, and thought that I was like every other person that's read too many 19th century novels <laughs> um, and reads too much. Uh, in the, And so, and I thought about it, actually, when you go to events and listen to authors, they don't actually talk about the mechanics of dialogue that much. Mm. And I was just fascinated by, um, you know, I was so hungry just to absorb any, any knowledge about it. But it was what 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 I was struggling with is to try and get them because they are meant to sound a bit the same. So on the I, I think in on the phone, I think it's Imogen. It finds it hard to tell between Rachel and Margot's voices. I have that with my sister and my mother. I have like, that with my mom. Yeah, <laughs> my dog, my dog Bomber, can hear my sister's voice and think it's me. Um, so I wanted to get that because I think that's key. And also this, um, I have this very much with my family, this shared sense of humor. I mean, people try to come in on a a family old joke. I mean, they might think we're all balmy. I mean, when we were, when we were younger, we used to, I remember we went to a restaurant for the third time or something, one on holiday and they put us in a room on our own. (laughs) 
because <laughs> we were so noisy and like you know I really wanted to capture that 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 kind of family on mass and the and the things that aren't said and the the fact that you pick up snippets but you wouldn't know where it came from so but I had to work really really hard on it mm. And the advice she gave me, which was brilliant, was like work out a rhythm and a cadence for each, each voice. Um, so Margot was easier because she's very, she's got a dramatic flair to her. So she's darling and mm. she makes grand statements. And then pulling out the character, Imogen is a little bit more, so she's always thinking. So her her speech is a little bit more poor uh, unsure and then Rachel's always very pragmatic so you'd pull out their characters but yeah I, t- I did a lot of work on it yeah that's a great bit of advice actually because you're right I don't think people talk about dialogue very much and I think no. the mistake that a lot of people make think or, or make is that they think it has to be exactly like real speech so ums and ahs and <gasps> oh I know which obviously you don't want it to be like because if we if we wrote like what you actually speak it would be awful to read but yeah. then you say sometimes maybe you over over explain things or say too much or yeah. maybe we all start a campaign to get writers to talk more about how they write their dialogue yeah because yeah, you don't really you, you people don't really and, and you know she she taught me as well about stripping out the grammar um and and exactly what you said about not trying to you know not trying to pair it back too much but definitely strip out a lot of the grammar I had in my mm. speech make it less formal um I mean I use dashes quite a lot actually because they're always interrupting <laughs> each other the garments and I wanted that sense of quite fast pace sometimes mm. um funnily enough my second book that uh, I, I've just done a first draft on doesn't have that because it's not a family of sisters that you do they spend quite a lot of time on the phone so it was really really tricky so you mentioned that your husband was your first reader yes I wondered whether because obviously you have been in the industry for so long on the publicity side Mm. whether you felt a little bit apprehensive about writing or Mm. taking writing seriously did you kind of keep it secret did you share with anyone that you will work on this novel I have this great friend uh, called Becky Hunter, who is also a novelist. Um, She's got her debut coming out um, next month, March, One Moment it's called. And she uh, works in publicity. She's worked for me at Headline and and, um, she works at Midas Freelance. She also does editorial Midas. She also does editorial freelance. Uh, So she she was my really confidant. she knows me well and she was the person I spoke to and she also read it after James and and was like yeah this is you know you need to do something with this but she was the poor person I feel so sorry for her I gave her a big shout out my launch the other day and she's in my acknowledgements um because she was the one that had to deal with all my um paranoia and insecurities but she's been absolutely brilliant because she sort of can tell me she's quite you know she she knows me well she can tell me to stop being ridiculous and to understand that everything that's happened so far has been really really good mm. um so she 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 was helpful in that regard but yes I, t- I was really nervous about uh, it going out because I didn't want I didn't want it to be bought because I was George, Georgina Moore, mm. you know, and that I would be good at the publicity and I would have industry contacts and get quotes and stuff because I really would have hated that. And I wouldn't have felt good about sending it to my contacts if I, so I did do a lot of work on it when I, when um, I, I had Kath wanted, Kath Summerhays at Coast Brown to be my agent with her. I said, let's get it really good before it goes out. Mm. So people go, 
it's George Moore and it's really good. And um, in fact, my editor told the story at my launch party that um, they'd they were all reading it, and she she and they were all a bit like, oh, industry. And also, I think industry people can sometimes be a pain for publishers because they know too much. You know too much. And, yeah. <laughs> and she said, she said, she said, she said in the speech that she sent a text like after reading the first two chapters to Lisa Milton, who's the MD of HQ, going, oh, hang on. The George Moore, we, you, everyone needs to read it, which was nice to hear that it mm. was kind of that they came with kind of suspicion. And then what, it was. a So that was what I was really paranoid about, that everyone would think that. Um, and even even now, people say to me, and it is really good. <laughs> which is really rude. But anyway, <laughs> it's understandable. You didn't go to kind of any authors that you'd you'd worked with previously and slyly kind of or subtly ask them for advice without telling them you were writing a book. No, I I I I really I think once I knew James and Becky because I really trusted Becky and I really trusted James. I think once I knew that they thought it was good, and I really I think from the beginning I knew I had something really good with Margot. Mm. Margot felt so real to me, and I I I, I really I felt that I had something and obviously you know I read a lot too so I kind of um I kind of felt it that I would take but but so I didn't want to go to authors I wanted it when it first went to authors it to be like the best it could be and strong because it's a difficult one when when you're my my, I'm close to quite a lot of authors who I've worked with as a publicist and I so I suppose even right from the beginning Chloe I was thinking about the way I was going to present everything probably And being quite strategic about it, actually. Mm. Uh, but then you'd expect me to be. I mean, I yeah. You said your career had sort of put you off writing a little bit or becoming an author in a, in a way because you'd mm. seen the the downsides. Um, yeah. What what kind of have you seen now that you're working on the other side of the industry? Mm. Has there anything that's kind of you found surprising or challenging? I mean, I imagine it's prepared you in some ways but it's also made certain aspects harder because mm. of your kind of reputation in the industry you mm. almost feel like you have to prove yourself doubly to to make people uh believe I guess believe that you are a, a good writer in your own right mm. yeah I it's been really interesting actually it's been really hard being the other side um but also really I've really it's really been really fun and I think one of the things that I'm glad about being older is that I'm a little bit more hard bitten and, and and really realize that you know I I I should enjoy it all uh, and really appreciate it um and not try not to be too anxious about everything but really mm-hmm. I I think I've it's given me a better appreciation of what I've put all this through <laughs> all the sort of write this do this do that short story um sending them off you know to stand up and suddenly do an event you know I mean I'm lucky in that you know most people would say who know me would say I'm an extrovert um and I think that you know a lot of writers I've worked with are are lovely gorgeous introverts (laughs) and I think to myself god that would be even harder I mean I just you know I love chatting and I love to my my thing is getting me to shut up (laughs) um I did say something I think I need media training to learn when to be quiet but yes I think it's been really interesting being the other side I've realized a lot more how hard it is I've got a lot more sympathy for authors I think 
even selling one copy of a book when nobody, you know, nobody knows who the hell you are is really, really hard. Um, I think getting even one person into a bookshop is really, really hard. Um, and I, you see all the effort that goes into, you know, it. Um, and it makes you feel sympathetic as well for people who maybe haven't got that big push behind them too. I mean, I have to, you know, I do feel that as well. Yeah, I think all I can do is just try and, you know, and I really would like to do this for the future. It's not something I wanted to do as a one-off. I've loved the actual writing process and learning it. So I think I've got that in mind that I really want to say yes to everything. That's the other thing I've been doing is I've been saying yes to everything. And I I think I said that in The Observer. I, I don't know why you wouldn't because, you know, the say yes to the big stuff, but say yes to the smaller stuff too, because... I think you were saying, Chloe, you're all the same because you never know who's going to be listening. You never mm. know where you engage with the reader and make a sale or, you know. So I really, I, I, I mean, I was like that as a publicist with my authors. I was saying, you know, do everything. Yeah. I know we've spoken as well mm. before we started recording about how it's sort of made you appreciate the the kind of collaboration between mm. all the um, um, publicity team. And because you have that understanding, having worked in PR for, for a long mm. time, how it all works as a new author coming into it, it can be totally overwhelming and you don't know mm. where you fit in. And, and you spoke to me about how you feel like collaboration mm. is so important. It, it it really is. And whenever I've worked with a debut author, I have tried to explain that to them so they have some understanding about that. You know, there, there's been lots of talk in the industry about, you know, um, publishers suddenly throwing a whole load of stuff at authors, right? Do your website, do your social media, do... And a lot of people who are, have been overwhelmed by that, not knowing where to start or, you know, what they're allowed to do off their own initiative and... And I think that I've always said to people, and I hope this has been the way I've been with my team at HQ, is that try and work together as a team. So rather than phrasing everything as what are you going to do for this book? What do you, you know, what are we going to do together? Mm. Um, because and show appreciation. My biggest advice to debut authors is show appreciation for every single little thing that's done for you. Because marketing and PR particularly is a free service. You know, I, I work for an arts agency where we're paid to do, you know, uh, it's a free service and it's it's competitive in a way because those those departments are often too small, really, for the amount of books. Uh, you know, every day there's a new imprint invested in, in in publishing, but there aren't new publicists and and marketers brought on to deal with those new imprints. So they're overworked and they're pressurized by too many titles. But if you show appreciation and if you work well with them and they like working with you, it's their own time. They're in charge of their time. It's their mm. decision who they spend it on. And with marketing and PR, there's always one more call that could be made or one more lunch that someone takes a proof to or one more connection that can be made. Um, and they're more likely to do it for you if you've made a connection with them. Mm. And I always say to people, particularly if they're kind of wanting advice, is that if you as an author enjoy going to a local bookshop you enjoy being spoken to on a podcast or you yeah. got a podcast that you love that you want to be on do it and be brave and be bold because if you tell people 
oh, I'm a local author. They're in, they're interested. So like they're not going to go. Okay, you might get the odd person that doesn't isn't very welcoming or very nice. Um, but a lot of the time you get excitement and enthusiasm yeah. from people, and they want to talk and they want to help you. You know, I I uh, got friendly with a local um, book festival, and then two years later they offered me an event. And you know that wouldn't have happened had I not kind of made the effort to mm. uh, sort of make connections and I know it's scary because like mm. you say if you are introverted it's mm. not natural if you're used to being alone in a room writing a book yeah it isn't always but the thing is these people are book lovers so why wouldn't they want to have a conversation with you about a book and I just exactly. think that the best thing you can do is to do the things that you enjoy doing and because you never know what's going to make a difference in terms of your sales. So if you enjoy doing it, do it anyway. Because even if you I, sell one more copy, that's just another copy that you've sold. That's another copy, exactly. Yeah. I, and I, I can't tell you the number of times I sat in acquisition meetings, which is the meeting when you're looking, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, it could be a new book that's come in and you're looking at it. And, and, and how in my career in publicity, it changed from us really being a down the line service that we, you know, were there to make the agent and author happy with the nice little review in the garden when people used to get reviews in the garden, you know, mm-hmm. um, widely, uh, uh, to being an integral part of the acquisition process and having a say in whether that author is promotable or not, mm-hmm. and and what they're, and I can't tell you the number of times when it's come to a renegotiate on a contract or a second, third, fourth, fifth book, and people sit in a room and they say oh yeah well, I love working with that author we should definitely yeah they're so great and do you know they went and off to that festival on their own and they went round proof drop they're amazing and they do mm-hmm. everything off their own bat and they're great and they're great to work with they're really appreciative the number of times I've heard that conversation yeah I think if I think if authors knew that that mm-hmm. the, the, the cooperation and the you know is it, such a big factor in whether they're you know in how their careers progress mm-hmm. exactly as you say that you make a connection. I mean, I always said to authors when they were joining, find out other authors that you you know are writing the same as you whether it's the romance you know whether it's the rna and join the societies go to other authors events read other authors books or that are in the same arena support them with quotes i mean there are a lot of authors that you know as you know chloe that are really good at this really really good you support the other authors that are in your genre um go to their events you know get make relationships because then you might be asked to go on a panel with them at a festival i mean you it 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 really is as you say connections lead to connections Mm, definitely so we've briefly mentioned your attempts at writing another book so I was Mm. interested to know whether your you think your writing kind of routine or or method or approach has changed from writing the Garnet Girls Mm. I mean you've probably got less time now but how is it how is it anyway not in lockdown but how do you think maybe I guess on a you I mean you must have so much more knowledge of writing book two than you had writing the Garnet Girls so how has um, I'll ask you a little bit about what the book's about in a minute, but how has your kind of writing approach changed? So I can't remember when it was exactly, but thing I think started to feel, I had the first few meetings about the Garnet Girls and I remember I was in a meeting with the 
marketing team that were going to work on it. It was a lunch or something. And I was chatting to my editor and across the table, there were three girls, which, women, not girls, women in publishing who were talking about it were going, oh, yeah, I think you're Sasha. And she says, no, you're definitely. And they were talking about And I was like, oh, my God, they're talking about my characters. This is so weird. And um, slowly the penny began to drop that, you know, there were there were people that liked the book. Um, and I let myself and so I then did say to Jason who I run Midas with um, Jason Bartholomew I said look I think I'm going to take a if you don't mind I'm going to take a day for writing you and go down to four days and that was a big step for me because <laughs> that was saying I'm going to treat it seriously and it made a huge difference because I'm I'm quite a fast writer in terms of once I have the ideas and the characters so I would write from till one on a Tuesday morning and to one on a Friday morning and having those two sections then at the weekend and, and whenever I could fit it in. But that's made a huge difference because it feel, it's almost like a commitment to writing, mm. not just squeezing it around the edges. With family life, you know, the Garnet Girls and everything that's happened the family's all a bit like, oh, mummy, stop banging on about it. But there is a, there is an understanding that it, it's on its way. It's go, it's had great early readers like it. It's had great quotes. And um, I bought with my book money that I got, I bought this, which I'm on at the moment. I bought this canal, little tiny canal boat called Betsy, uh, which because we live on the river. So I can see the river and it's like my and the children would have to come down come out onto the terrace, come onto the boat. And they don't. Uh, they'd send me a text going, are you coming off the boat, mum? So I've got a special dedicated place for writing. Um, so all those things have really, really helped. And I think the family thinks, okay, this is what mum's doing now. That This mm. is, you know, so that's all helped. Um, it's not something I have to sneak up at five and do in, in private time. Um it it will it will be a challenge and it's not always going to be i think straightforward in terms of looking after other authors as well i think it you know it works brilliantly with someone like maggie o'farrell because we have a long term relationship we know each other well and she writes something completely different from mm. what i do so we're not in the same arena um but i think well you know i'll just have to work it out as i go along but yes it, it i have written the first draft so i'm very feeling pleased with myself over that <laughs> yeah so <laughs> Finally, Georgina, please tell us a little tease, if you can, about what you're working on at the moment. It is set on a houseboat island. The island that I live on has a very similar history to Eel Pie Island, uh, which many listeners will know was sort of the heart of rock and roll in the 60s. Even the Rolling Stones played there. And both islands had these amazing old hotels that become a sort of centre of music. Uh, and so I sort of began to find out that there were lots of parallels. So I've sort of created a fantasy island based on the history um, and um, set my heroine there and my hero who has inherited the island and this tumble down hotel and all the sort of um ties to the past and the burdens of the past you didn't really want to inherit it and it's really about the story woving with the past and the present about this island and its future and what's going to happen to the people who live on it oh another island community that i'm sure you will enjoy kind of describing the setting because we know you do that so well already oh, Georgina, thank, you. thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you chloe that was georgina moore talking about her contemporary novel the Garnet Girls, which is out now 
and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.